Well, friends, if someone were to ask you, if they were to ask you what direction, what direction is Christianity ultimately looking in, past, present, or future? Someone already asked that. Christianity, primarily looking in past, present, or future. The question, of course, at one level is we're looking at all of them, past, present, and future, right? But the question is, what is ultimately the direction at which Christians are looking to? Well, it may surprise some of you to know that Christians are primarily gazing into the future. Into the future. Yes, of course, we have our eyes upon the cross. We'll talk about that again this morning. In the past, we'll think about the resurrection that also happened in the past. But those events, friends, purchased and previewed the events of the future. And that's the primary gaze of Jesus' church. Now, some of you may have been to Disney World or Disneyland in California or Florida, and you'll know that there's a few kind of major places, kind of few little pieces of the park. There's a couple of them called Frontierland and Tomorrowland, right? Yep, Frontierland and Tomorrowland. Frontierland, of course, is built upon that general store and Thunder Mountain where you have the old train, you know, rolling through the hills. Everyone is dressed in Western, old Western clothes that nobody really wears anymore. It's fun, right, in Frontierland because it's nostalgic, right? It's in the past, as it were. But Frontierland is not nearly as much fun as Tomorrowland, right? Tomorrowland is built upon the future. It's designed to feed your imagination about what life might be, might be like one day in the future. We have Space Mountain. There's that spaceship Earth where you ride through a giant star-like sphere and learn about life in the future, right? You learn, you go through the carousel of progress. The clothes and the food choices captivate the imagination. Friends, the church of Jesus Christ is built upon the cross and resurrection in the kind of frontier land, but its steady gaze and great hope that fuels its life and mission is found in Tomorrowland. We see that in the resurrection of Christ. Big idea this morning is pretty simple. Three words, you've already heard them. He has risen. Each of those words will make up each of the points. So if you go home today and somebody asks you, what in the world did the preacher talk about today? There you go. It's really simple. Three words. He has risen. Three words that is the greatest mic drop moment in the history of the world. Now, it's to be clear, our normal practice here at this church is to work through books of the Bible and just kind of take them line by line. Matter of fact, if you come back next week, we're going to be looking in the book of James. It's where we've been. But we're stepping away for uh, a week to consider this resurrection. And we're going to be doing that. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28, 1 to 10. But uh, just so you know, this will be a little bit different for us. We're going to hop around a good bit. Um, Matthew 28, 1 to 10 is what I'm going to read. That's on page 835 of the Pew Bible that's right in front of you. But I will be hopping around a good bit. But let's go ahead and read that. Let's see those words he has risen. Take a look. Matthew 28, verse 1. Here's God's word. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who 
who was crucified. He is not here for here it is for he has risen. As he said, come see quickly the place where he lay and then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee where you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. And we also read in Mark 16, 6, those same words. He has risen from the angel. If you look down in Luke chapter 24, verse 5, we see the angel saying he is not here, but has risen. And so we see this in the Gospels. So that first point, he, he. And in this point, guys, we're going to define the person and the work of Christ. We're going to visit Frontierland for a bit, shall we? He. So when the angel says he has risen, the reference, of course, is to Jesus Christ. Or, as it says in the other gospel accounts in reference, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, that of Nazareth is marking off which Jesus we're talking about. And, of course, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Maybe you didn't know that. Christ is not his last name, right? That's a title, Messiah or anointed one. And so both, you take these two, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, and you combine them together. And there you get the really definition of who the person of Jesus is. He is fully God, Christ And he is fully man, Jesus of Nazareth. Fully God and fully man. So to be clear, Christians do not believe, as the Jehovah Witnesses or Mormons believe, that Jesus was a created being that became God. It's not what Christians believe. Nor do Christians believe, as the Muslims and Jews believe, that Jesus was merely a teacher or a prophet. No, Christians believe that Jesus was God in the flesh. He said himself that he was the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He said, uh, when you see me, you see the Father. Uh, And he claimed to be the Son of God, meaning, as it says of him in Hebrews, that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. Jesus claimed to be the Son of Man, which was a divine kingly title from Daniel 7. He claimed to be Jesus did before Abraham. And, of course, most convincing, he claimed to be Lord. Yahweh, I am. We see his divinity, of course, in his miracles and even his forgiving sin. But again, Jesus was not only God, he was also God in the flesh. He became human. He was Jesus of Nazareth. As it says of him in Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, that is, he was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, that is, to be held on to. But instead, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so this humanity part of Jesus, this is what Christians celebrate every Christmas, right? The incarnation, the most astounding and mysterious of realities. God dwelling among us in human form. We will learn about this from John 1.14 where it says the word, referencing Christ, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was fully man, born of a woman. He was tempted in every way as we are, but as God, he never sinned. He got tired, hungry, thirsty. He worked a job, lived in a small community, had friends, had brothers and sisters. And even Hebrews 5, 8 tells us, learned obedience through what he suffered. And suffering, guys, is why Jesus came. 
He came to suffer. In fact, on the night of his betrayal, he said as much. Jesus says in John 12, 27, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And there, of course, he's referencing the cross. And so Jesus, as God in the flesh, came not to teach people how to be healthy and wealthy and happy in this world as it is. No. Nor did he come to give a few life principles in order to make us feel better about ourselves. Nor did he come to institute a kind of new law wherein if we obey it 51% of the time, you might get his kingdom. No. Jesus, as the God-man, came for the purpose of suffering. And suffering, this is important, to suffering for the purpose of redeeming mankind from the sin that separates us from God and from one another. He says this and references this in many places, this sin, this atoning death that he's going to, to offer. Uh, we thought about this on Friday night, Good Friday service here. He said, Jesus says, uh, of his giving his life for sins in Mark ten forty five, when he says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, as a payment for many. And we see that Jesus' disciples said the same thing of him, this notion of suffering for sin. John, Jesus is prepared. John the Baptist called Jesus in John one twenty nine, the Lamb of God that's a sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul, who we'll talk about again in a moment, used to be an enemy of Jesus, but became a follower, says in Ephesians 5, 2, to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The apostle in Hebrews says the same, Hebrews 9, 6. But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then the Apostle John says the same thing in Revelation 1.5. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. This is why he came. Now, friends, it's not popular, is it, to talk about sin. It's never really been popular, let's be honest, to talk about sin. But it was quite popular for Jesus to talk about sin. Again, it's why he came, to put sin to death. Jesus understood the most fundamental problem of humanity in our world is this willful rebellion against all of us, or in all of us, against God and his good commands, dwelling in our hearts. He understood that was the, <clears throat> the core of the problem with the world, something that no amount of good works can kind of overcome, as it were. Now, if we think about this just for a minute, right? If we were to, if we were to resolve to say, you know, Nathan's sermon was fantastic. I'm inspired. I'm going to not sin this week. You guys, you wouldn't last a week. You wouldn't last a few hours, right? I know that would be true for me. At some point, we would quickly start coveting someone else's gold and silver. We would slander an enemy or gossip, or we would commit some other kind of sexual immorality, lust in our hearts, whatever it is. And so Jesus makes crystal clear that all have sinned and all stand condemned before a holy God. Our hearts, friends, are not able to be fixed by any amount of obedience to the law. All of us stand condemned. None of us deserve heaven. None of us. I don't, you don't, none of us do. And we all deserve hell. Every one of us do. Hell would be just to serve to everybody. Even the kindest among us, right? Because friendliness is not, friendliness or kindness is not the standard. Holiness is. God is perfect and not a one of us is or ever has been. 
except Jesus. He was and is uniquely able to make atonement, make sacrifice for sinners on the cross because of who he as Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus as cross is. Jesus as fully God and fully man. Only he could make this sacrifice for sin. And so if you've ever wondered, if you've ever asked yourself this question, how can one guy's sacrifice 2,000 years ago pay the debt of my sin? If you've ever asked yourself that question, well, there's your answer. Jesus is the only one who was offered the perfect sacrifice. His spotless righteousness, his perfect obedience to the law in the 33 years in which he walked the earth is uniquely able to pay the debt of our sin. And that's what we celebrate in the cross of Christ. Jesus is treated as all of us should have been treated. We talk a lot about people that suffer innocently or innocent sufferers for good reason, I would add. But friends, we should all know that there was only one truly innocent sufferer, and that was Jesus. He never committed any sin, and yet he was made to be sin. That is, he came to take the penalty of our sin on his back at the cross, right? His, his blood was spilt to pay the ransom of the sins of all those that trust him. And he could because his blood is perfectly righteous. On the cross, Jesus is treated as we should be treated. He then takes the wrath of God, and, he, and we who believe take the righteousness of Christ. This is the great exchange. Because of Jesus' perfect sacrifice, he is treated as sin deserves. And we are treated, we who believe are treated as only Christ deserves. And all of this happens, guys, because of grace, because of love, because of the kindness and the mercy of God. This, friends, is the gospel, what we call gospel good news. This is why Jesus came, to be a substitutionary sacrifice for those who believe. And it is this sacrifice that Jesus, uh, of Jesus that sets uh, Christianity apart from every other founder of every other religion in the world, right? This, uh, their purpose, other religions in the world, uh, in other false religions, be it Muhammad or Buddha, is to be a kind of example for everybody else. Jesus' purpose was, of course, at some level to be an example, but his was far more than that. His purpose was to die and be a sacrifice for sin. Not to, not to model forgiveness, but to purchase forgiveness. Tim Keller says it well. He says, the ancients understood the idea of the wrath of God. They understood the idea of justice, the idea of a debt and a necessary punishment. But they had no idea that God would come and make it himself. And so, friends, we're tempted to believe that the cross is evidence of our loveliness. But, in fact, it's the very opposite. It's the evidence of God's love for his children. John says as much in 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation. That means wrath quencher for our sin. And so therefore, as understanding love in that way, love never rejoices in wrongdoing. Uh, Love never should affirm that which God says is wrong. Love rejoices in the truth. And the truth is, all of us deserve hell, but God offers us heaven and the sacrifice of the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ. He and he alone is able to reconcile man to God because he was both God and man. And this, friends, is the angel's announcement. Matthew 28, 5, again, I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Before we talk about the resurrection, we've got to talk about his death. He was crucified. 
Now listen, I'll get to the resurrection in just a moment, but let me pause here for just a little bit of application for us this morning. R.C. Sproul says it well when he says uh, that the prevailing doctrine of justification, justification just means being declared innocent, the prevailing doctrine of justification today, he says, is not justification by faith alone. That's not the prevailing doctrine in our culture. It's not even justification by good works or a combination of faith and works. Those are not the declaring notions of justification in our society. He says the prevailing notion of justification in Western culture today is justification by death. He says it's assumed that all one has to do to be received into the everlasting arms of God is die. Unquote. And how could we disagree? Right? Think about the last celebrity that died. What is always said of them, no matter what they believed or how they lived. Well, they're in a better place now. Well, they're looking over us, whatever the case may be. And maybe they say that because they believe that God is a forgiving God, or maybe they believe that, you know, the person was a nice person. But friends, Jesus makes crystal clear that if salvation, if righteousness, if heaven is possible, apart from the substitutionary death of Christ for sinners who believe, if there's another way to heaven apart from Jesus, then listen, Jesus died for no purpose. You should not worship a God that would wastefully offer up his son when there's other ways to God. Of course, the story is we know there is no other way, which is why Jesus says as much, right? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man come to the Father but through me. And that's the invitation for us all this morning. Come to Jesus in faith. Acknowledge your guilt before God. Agree with his assessment that you deserve hell. Run to Christ in faith and plead for grace. And know that you'll be forgiven in him. Plead the merits of his perfect blood on your behalf. By grace through faith in Christ's perfect life, his innocent sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection. In other words, die to yourself, live to him, be born again to a new and living hope. And friend, if that is your cry this morning, then talk to somebody about it. Talk to me, talk to somebody you've seen up here, talk to uh, somebody that brought you here. If that is your cry, you say, I want to know this Jesus. I want to be born again. I want that righteousness. It's found in Christ. I've never understood this gospel in this way. Can you talk to me more about it? Listen, go to them. Ask the person that brought you or invited you and ask them to pray with you. We'd love to talk to you more about that. And for those of us that do daily die to self and live to Christ, listen, beloved, behold the love of God. See it anew. Behold your great salvation in Christ. Look again and see the wonders of God's love for you in Christ on the cross. Be renewed and reoriented to the definition of love and wonder at the extent to which he went in order to bring you home to him as his adopted son or daughter. Let's even take just a moment now, just a, just a, just two moments, two little seconds of silence to ponder God's love for you, Christian. But don't only linger at the cross. We need to linger also at the resurrection. For Jesus is no longer on the cross, right? He is not there. He has risen. I'm about to ask you guys to talk, so get ready. I know I'm in the middle of preaching. We don't normally do that, but here we go. Get ready, right? He has risen. All right, good. You're awake. Here we go. Second point, has, right? The first point was defining the he, the person and the work of Christ. 
Now we're thinking about the has, that second one, when the angel says he has risen. He has, this is referencing the truthfulness of the resurrection. It's been done. In other words, it's happened. Jesus is no longer dead. He got up from death. He's alive again. And of course, this resurrection is the linchpin to the Christian faith. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 15, 13 to 14. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So the reason for this, guys, the reason for why Paul says this is because if Christ doesn't raise from the dead, then he is no different than any other false teacher that made some claims and died and stayed dead. The Old Testament, though, prophesied that Christ would raise from the dead hundreds of years in advance. Jesus said numerous times that he would advance and it would rise. And, of course, he did. And in his doing, in his raising, he didn't defeat sin. That's important to note. The resurrection is not the thing that defeats sin. That was done on the cross. But his resurrection reveals the victory of the cross. Right, So the resurrection, as one pastor put it, is the victory endorsed, proclaimed, and demonstrated. Therefore, if Christ doesn't rise, then our faith in Christ on the cross would be in vain because we would still be in our sin. Guys, if Jesus doesn't raise from the dead, this whole thing is a waste of time. We're just wasting our time. But if it is true, it means everything. The fact is, friends, Jesus did rise from the dead. And this is the time at which maybe some skeptics among us, so glad that you're here, say, like, for real, bro, like, you actually believe a dude got up from the dead. Some of you are thinking that, right? For real, like, you act, you guys actually believe, right? In the 21st century, like, that some guy got up from the dead. And our answer is, unequivocally, yeah, we do. We feel pretty good about it. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to briefly offer five evidences that make the claim of resurrection from the dead the most reasonable conclusion. I'm just going to do that briefly. Our faith, just to be clear, our faith as Christians does not rest primarily on logic. It rests on Christ, to be clear. But we as Christians don't believe in blind faith. Right? We, 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 we want to know the truth because we believe the truth sets us free. So here's five evidences that lead us as Christians to conclude that the resurrection of Christ is the most plausible conclusion given the claim of Christ to raise from the dead. They're going to be brief. Here, ready? Here we go. First evidence. One, the testimony of women. The resurrection of Christ is the most plausible conclusion because of the testimony of women as first witnesses. Some of you have heard this before, but in ancient times, the testimony of women would not even be admissible in a court, sadly. Therefore, if the disciples were making this whole thing up, this resurrection, why in the world, and they all universally said this, why in the world would you make the very first witnesses women? Unless it actually happened that way. And they were just reporting the news, as it were. Testimony of women. Second, The resurrection of Christ is the most plausible conclusion because of the quick change of individual lives. The quick change of individual lives. How do you explain, for instance, that the drastic quick change of Jesus' half-brother James? Could you imagine growing up in the same house as Jesus? Right, James did. This is who we've been studying, by the way, on other Sundays. We're in the middle of reading his letter. But the change, James during Jesus' earthly ministry, is understandably opposed to Jesus as Lord, right? But it is after the resurrection where we read in 1 Corinthians that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appears to his brother James. We then read that James surrenders 
his faith to his half-brother Jesus as Lord. How do you explain that apart from the resurrection? We can make similar claims about Paul. Paul is the author of 13 of the 27 New Testament books and the primary missionary of the early church. This dude was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He hated Christians. He hated Christians so much he's going door to door going, you're a Christian? Cool. Beat them up. Like he hates Christians. And yet Paul changes literally on a dime. History records that he moves from uh, the greatest persecutor of the church to the greatest advocate of Christ as Lord. As the greatest advocate for the gospel in the church. And the reason that he offers is the resurrection. A quick change. You can read about that today in Acts chapter 9. Actually, go back and read Acts chapter 8 when he's literally killing dudes. And then read Acts chapter 9. And of course, we could also look at the quick change of the disciples themselves. When Jesus is taken away to be crucified, they peace out, right? They get, the, they get out of Dodge, off they go. Peter famously, right, denies Jesus three times. However, everything changes for these disciples. They go from being immobilized by fear to going out in public and preaching the gospel to the very same people that killed Jesus. And what was the quick change? How do you account for it? Well, the answer, of course, is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which came after Jesus Christ had appeared to them in the resurrection. And so first, the testimony of women. Two, the quick change of persons. Third, the quick change of a community. The quick change of worship, in particular, of a community. Right? The Jews had worshipped in a particular way for literally thousands of years offering sacrifices as offerings for their sins, seeing Saturday as the seventh day, that holy day, the Sabbath day. But we find literally thousands of Jews that change their worship overnight. They no longer offer sacrifices. They move their day of Sabbath, again, a holy day. They move that from a Saturday and they move it to a Sunday. If ever you wondered why Christians worship on a Sunday, there's why. Why do they all, why all this change? Because they believe that Christ rose. And he rose in particular on the first day of the week, Sunday. How do you explain that apart from the resurrection of Christ? How does this hunt thousands of years of worship change so quickly? Fourth, the public nature of the resurrection. The public nature of the resurrection. When you investigate false religions like Islam or Mormonism, you'll always run across key pieces of the story where God speaks to their leaders in private. Whether it be Muhammad claiming to be visited in private by an angel in 610 to receive a new teaching that would go on to be the Quran, or Joseph Smith claiming to be visited by an angel in private in order to receive golden tablets that would go on to be formative for the Book of Mormon. Friends, it's easy to see why it's both hard to verify or falsify such claims when they happen in private. But if, if the key pieces of the claims to the truth are done out in public, Right, That then builds our confidence that the claims are true. And friends, this is the claim of Christians. Not only that Jesus was crucified out in public for all to see, because of course he was, but he was raised and appeared in public before hundreds of people after his resurrection. Some of whom were still living and could verify such claims when the New Testament was written. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, when he said that Jesus appeared before 500 people out in public. And so Jesus' resurrection was not hidden from the world, but he appeared out in the world as a resurrected Savior. Fifth and final. The tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. See, in the first century, Palestine, there was one thing that was universally hated by both the Jews and the Romans, who, by the way, were in control of the region. 
one thing that they both kind of agreed on that they didn't like, and that was Christians. Jews and Romans both didn't like Christians. Obviously, the Jews that rejected Christ as Messiah hated him as evidenced by their desire to crucify him. But the Romans hated him just as well as is evidenced by the long line of persecutions for those first few hundred years in history. And the reason why the Romans are persecuting him because Christians are going around going, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And what is it we find the Christians doing in these early days? Go read the book of Acts. You'll find them testifying to the resurrection time and again. Everywhere they go, they are leaning on the resurrection of Christ to prove that the gospel is true, that it's real, worth surrendering their life for. Therefore, in order for either the Jews or the Romans, who were both the cultural powers of the regions, in order for them to stop the spread of Christianity and expose Christianity as a lie, they had to do one simple thing to stop it all. Just show them where the body was. Expose the body, and this whole gospel, this whole Christian thing stops in its tracks. The point was, of course, that they couldn't. The body wasn't there. Now, some of you may say, well, what if the disciples hid the body? Two things about that. Actually, three things. One, Scripture said that they tried to do that. didn't work out. Two, it was guarded by a bunch of soldiers. Three, three, if it's true that the disciples hid the body, why in the world or do you know of anybody that knowingly dies for lies while preaching a gospel that tells you not to be friends with the world? People die for lies all the time, but they don't die for lies when they know, when they're being told to not live for this world instead of living in poverty oftentimes. And so when you put all these together, friends, the very first testimonies of Jesus' resurrection from women, the quick change of individual lives and the worship of thousands, the appearance of the resurrected Christ in public, an empty tomb. When you put all these together, the most plausible conclusion is that Jesus really did raise from the dead. Or as the angel said, he is not here. He, Jesus, the God-man who sacrificed himself for sin, is not here for he has risen. Final point. I'm going to ask you again to keep you with me. He has risen. Here we go. We're going to think about that third one, right? First one, he, pointing to the person and the work of Christ. Risen, the truthfulness of the resurrection. Third, risen. We're going to think about this word risen, which is the power and the hope, right, of the Christian life. Power and the hope. So if there was one thing that the whole world could come together on, right? If there's one thing we could think about, what would be the whole, what's one thing that the world could come together on? I think it would be this. There'd be a couple things. But in particular, they would universally, the world would universally agree that they hate death. Everybody hates death in the world. Nobody wants it. You've seen a little bit of this in the pandemic, right? People trying to band together to get this vaccine out to stop death. Everyone instinctively knows, without ever being taught it, by the way, that there's something wrong about death. Even though death is natural, even though death is normal, even though death is expected, even for the one year, 100-year-old saint that dies, we still feel like when they die, something's wrong, something's off. And guys, you should feel that way. You should. Because death was never the way the world was supposed to be. And no religion on planet earth claims to strike at the core hatred of the world like the Christian faith. It is the unique claim of our faith as Christians that Jesus Christ not only defeated sin, but defeated the wages of sin. Death. Death. This is what Jesus accomplishes in the cross and is revealed in the resurrection. 
Jesus calls himself the resurrection and the life. John eleven twenty six. Jesus was said that he was the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. So in this way, guys, Jesus' bodily resurrection is then described as a kind of first fruits of those that will go on to believe in him. They too will have a resurrection. Let me give you a little bit of an example of this. Here we are at springtime. It's Easter. We're wearing our Easter colors. And at springtime, we think about new birth, right? And at the beginning of every spring, I don't know about you guys. I'm from the south. The winter's hard for me here. I know for you people in the north, you're like, come on, seriously? You really think this is cold here? I think it's cold here. All right? February, can't stand living in D.C. in February. Don't like it. But I'm here. I love it. I love you. I don't really like the cold. But anyway, I love to see at the end of February daffodils. Why? Because we know when you start seeing daffodils, spring's close. Right? You see daffodils. They're not only beautiful, daffodils. They're not only beautiful, but they're the first fruits of spring, aren't they? Daffodils. After the death of winter, the life of spring is on its ways. And the daffodils signal all that's about to come. Right? Daffodils signal the coming of cherry blossoms, right? It, it signals the coming of warm weather. It signals the coming of uh, green grass. It signals the coming of baseball, which will be in heaven. <laughs> Daffodils are a kind of first fruits, right? They signal all that's coming. Spring is coming. And Jesus' resurrection, friends, not only is the evidence of the sacrifice received for sinners who believe, Jesus' resurrection is the evidence of the gospel's promise of forgiveness. His resurrection not only displays that the check is clear. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of our own resurrection for we that believe upon him. You see, friends, we live in a strange day and a strange time for many reasons. But one of the foremost reasons is that we live in a time and a place where our culture either idolizes the body or ignores the body. Either we're told that your body must look like this, or we're told the body means very little, if anything at all. What matters is the mind. Our culture on the whole is either body worshiping or body ignoring. And the Christian faith comes in between the two of them and offers the freedom of our bodies. Jesus' resurrection teaches us that. Our bodies, friends, are not everything, but they are something. They matter to God. They cannot be ignored. He made them. He intends to restore them along with the rest of the earth. When Christ, with his resurrection body, returns to judge the living and the dead. And on that day, when he returns, we just sang about that glorious day. Everyone will be re- resurrected. Everyone will be. Some to eternal life and others to eternal death. And all will bow the knee to our crucified, resurrected, ascended, and returning Savior. A resurrected Savior on a resurrected earth. By the way, this is why we call our church resurrection, a restoration church. We did call it restoration church, right? Yes. Restoration church. We wanted to think about this day. This is where it's going. Where we will, again, worship a resurrected Savior on a resurrected earth with resurrected bodies. That's where all of humanity is going. All of the nations, a people from all of the nations together as one. In love, enjoying the fruit of the gospel, worshiping and enjoying Jesus. Friends, this is why the Christian's gaze is set upon the future. There's one promise. The Lord has, the Lord has fulfilled hundreds of promises. There's one promise left that we're waiting on for him to fulfill. And it's this one. His return where we will enjoy him on this resurrected earth, worshiping him and enjoying him forever with resurrected bodies. 
to the resurrection of Jesus Christ assures us, friends, that this present earth will one day be like frontier land. And Tomorrowland will eventually become a reality. And like you can visit Tomorrowland in Disney World, friends, you can visit the hope of heaven right here at the gathering of the church every Sunday morning. If you've ever thought of that. When we come together every Lord's Day to remember, not just on Easter, but every single week, that Christ's resurrection is the daffodil to our winter days. He defeated sin and death on the cross. The resurrection is our evidence of his victory. And we revel as Christians, we revel in our resplendent king who has such a great salvation and such a great hope. And we enjoy this every single week. We come here. We have to come here on the first day of every week because we get all wonky throughout the rest of the week. And we need to be reordered by Christ and his defeat of sin and death in the cross and in the resurrection. The church, friends, are the daffodils in the tomorrow land of the world. We are a preview of coming attractions. We are the appetizer of heavenly delights. We are a a nibble of a cupcake whose connection is inextricably tied to the feast of heaven. The church of Jesus Christ, when submitted to and delighting in the supremacy of Christ, is the suburb of heaven and the country of earth. It's what we are to be. And to be clear, some of you are going, uh, Nathan, I've seen the church and Maybe, Nathan, I know you. It's not that we get this right all of the time, but it is our intention to order our lives in keeping with this truth, to submit ourselves to Christ and to help each other on towards heaven, submitting to Jesus as king, submitting to his commands, which are for our good. That's our aim as the church. It's what we're trying to do in our teaching and our praying and our service is to offer a better story because it's a true story. Friends, the universal hope of a better world, a restored world, that's real. It's true. You you want that because you're supposed to want that. And it all comes together in the resurrected Jesus, previewed in the church that worships him together. Jesus, friends, is heaven's darling. He's the one that Christians want to see most of all, not play baseball. Most him we want to see. Christ, friends, is not only in heaven, he's what makes heaven heaven. And for the true Christian, that's what they want, to see him. And so that's why our mission statement here at Restoration Church reads as it does. It's trying to capture all of this. To make disciples that delight in the supremacy of Christ in Washington, D.C., and in India, and in Israel, and all these other places, even out in California, and Kansas, and Massachusetts, and Texas even. As one author has said, Jesus didn't come, friends, to bring a new religious possibility. He didn't come to bring a new ethic or a new salvation. Jesus came to bring a new creation. The way into that new creation is through the person and the work of Christ. He is the pattern, he is the power, and he is the pleasure of our life together in this new creation. He's the pattern in that he shows us how to live inside of the new life that we have in the new Jerusalem. He is the power to that life because we're too weak and too sinful. And as he purchases our salvation, our new creation at the cross and in the resurrection, he then becomes our pleasure and our life together. And soon enough, beloved, what we have been nibbling on here will become the substance of our lives together there. Jesus is our pattern, our power, and our pleasure because Jesus is eternal life. And so I want to thank you all this morning for joining us here in Tomorrowland. I hope you've enjoyed 
the sights, the sounds, the smells, the pleasure, as we will even have this preview of coming in Tomorrowland's food. Because this meal, friends, is an appetizer for the great feast with the king. That's what we do. And so I ask you one more time. He has risen. He, Jesus Christ, the God-man, that has purchased sin and death, overcome sin and death. Secondly, has. It's been done. It's true. Third, because of the resurrection, there is power, there is hope for a new and better world. And we hope in him for it. I pray you do as well. Let me pray for us towards that end. Father, we thank you that you sent your son. Jesus, we praise you that you are heaven's darling. That you are the first fruits of our resurrection. Jesus, you have done it as you said on the cross. It is finished. There's no more work left to be done. We cannot, we cannot work out our salvation in such a way as to accomplish it. Jesus, you have done it all. We praise you and we thank you for the promise, the truthfulness, the power of the resurrection and the hope that it gives us in this otherwise disappointing world. And so we hope in you and we praise you, Jesus, for what you have done and will do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.